Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he is teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Uh, Back in April, on Palm Sunday, we we skipped forward to where we're actually at now, and we had a bit of a brief overview of this whole section of Mark, where Jesus had his triumphal entry into the Jerusalem and, and everybody was welcoming him and waving palm branches and, and, and everything. The whole scene was building up to this mighty crescendo um, and, and the expectations building. What's going to happen when Jesus arrives at the temple? And it was all a bit of a letdown, really. Jesus arrived at the temple. He looked around at everything. It was too late. And so he left. And then he continued on. The next day, he cursed the fig tree, he drove the traders out of the temple, and then the next morning, the disciples noticed that the fig tree was withered. And we did talk a little bit at that stage about the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus wasn't being like some kind of spoiled brat, right? He wasn't being vindictive against that poor old tree. I mean, it wasn't really the tree's fault that it didn't have any fruit because it wasn't even the season for figs. What it was all about, when Jesus killed that fig tree... This was a living, breathing metaphor for Israel and the temple and the Jewish religious system. Just like that fig tree was all covered in nice green leaves, but it had no fruit, the temple, uh, particularly around the time of Passover, it was a hive of religious activity and, and everything was all very grand, but there was no fruit. The worship of Israel had become so fruitless that when the Son of God came into his temple, 
they rejected him. And, and, and worse than that, they put him on trial and they humiliated him and they handed him over to be crucified. And so when Jesus killed that fig tree, it was a metaphor for the old fruitless religious system coming to an end. Right, so we had a bit of an overview back then, but today we're going to look at it a little bit deeper because there's more, more here for us to learn. Now, the temple in Jerusalem, it was a very grand sort of a construction. Uh, it's no wonder the disciples marvelled at it when, when they saw it. It was massive and it was fancy. Now, you can see the diagram up on the temple there. That's how it was in the day of Jesus. Uh, that it's not the original temple that Solomon built. Uh, this one was much bigger. This is the temple that King Herod built. And I suspect it was probably built more as a monument for King Herod himself rather than being something for God. Now, if you can see there, in, it, you can see the fully enclosed part of the building, the, the, one that has, the part that has the roof on it up there. Um, inside that, there was a division. On one side of it, there was what they call the Holy of Holies, and it was divided off by a big curtain. And the high priest, only the high priest, nobody else, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, he was only allowed to go in there once a year. Still on the inside of that main enclosed part of the building, only on the other side of the uh, curtain, all of the priests were allowed to go, um, but not very often. Right? They were on a bit of a roster system, and, and some priests probably never actually got their turn to get there. It, it was only as... as the, as they were needed. Then as you come outside of that building, you can see the courtyard up there, and, and um, that's how far the, the, Jew the clean Jewish men were allowed to come, right? So they're allowed to come that close to the holy place of God. If you then look on to um, the cross-shaped courtyard there, you might be able to see in the picture, off to the right there for you. Um, now that was, this, that was the court of the women, that was as close as the ladies were allowed to get to the, to the um, holy place of God. And then if you come outside of the enclosed area there and down the steps, you come to a stone parapet, right? Or it's like a stone fence. And it had a few spots there, gateways where people could go through. But that stone parapet, that was a dividing line. That was what cut off the area into which the Gentiles were allowed to go. And so all here, this side and into the, this section here, that's all to do with the, that's the, called the court of the Gentiles. And it, it was quite extensive and it was enclosed by another wall which isn't on that diagram. And if the Gentiles tried to go the other side of that parapet, well, that wasn't good for them. Um, there has actually been a sign dug up at the temple excavation which actually says that any Gentiles who come this side of this, um, of this sign shall be killed. Now, so the court of the Gentiles, it was actually part of the temple complex, right? This was the place where the Gentiles, right, the non-Jewish Christians who had been converted to the worship of Yahweh, the Lord our God, this is where they were allowed to come to pray and worship. And so they were allowed in the temple, but only in that part of the temple. And Bible scholars are pretty sure that this is the same area 
where the traders were setting up their stalls to make a profit out of anybody who came to worship. You see, when we, when we think of, of, um, of the Jewish worship here in the temple, we, we've got to get into our minds, think, think um, religious tourism, if you like. Right? So you know what things are like when you're on holidays. You, you go somewhere and, and, and everything's sort of priced at a premium, especially for the tourists, isn't it? Right? So how much was that, that steak that we saw at that butcher's shop in the tourist area where we were, Robin? $90 a kilogram for steak. Who wants to buy some steak at $90 a kilo? But apparently tourists buy that, but not if you're from St George. Right? But, you know, for example, you might go somewhere and there might be some pretty native parrots, right? And, and other people are feeding little bits of bird seed out to the parrots and they're coming and sitting on their hands. And what do you do? Oh, I want to feed the parrots too and give the kids a go. How we do that? Oh, look, there's a very convenient stall set up where you can buy five cents worth of sunflower seeds for five dollars. You know what I mean? This is the way the tourism works. Or you might go to a theme park and, of course, you're not allowed to take your own tucker in there, and, um, but you get thirsty, so you've got to buy a drink and well, something that you can buy from the local supermarket when it's on special for 50 cents, or maybe you could buy a cold soft drink for two dollars just about anywhere might cost you $7 because you're in the theme park. Or you might go to the airport because you're going overseas and you sort of have a, had a bit of a think, oh, no, I don't, I don't think I need any foreign currency, I'll just use the credit card. But then when you're sitting there in the airport waiting away, you see the currency exchange there and you go, oh, I probably should just get a bit of, a bit of the local currency just in case I need it before I get, you know, before I get a chance to get any. And you very quickly realise that they've actually got about a 20% markup on the exchange rate and, and then they might charge you another $20 on top of that to do the deal and so you give them 100 Australian dollars and they might give you the equivalent of about 60 Australian dollars only in another currency, right? Now this is the sort of thing that, that was probably going on then. The temple was like a religious tourist attraction. This was the highlight of any religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And all the religious traders were there selling their wares. They had the currency exchange happening, right, so that you could have the right coinage for the temple tax. You weren't allowed to take Roman coins in there because that had the, the likeness of Caesar on it and you weren't allowed to have Roman, the likeness of Caesar in the temple, so you actually had to have the special temple coins. And they were selling birds and, and animals and grains so that you could buy the right thing for the sacrifice that you came there to do. And it's believed that by the time of Jesus, a lot of this trading all took place in the court of the Gentiles. And so these foreigners who'd come from miles to worship the Lord their God, they weren't allowed in the inner areas, but that was okay with them because hey there's still this place where where I can come I can come to this court of the Gentiles and there I can pray and worship God but then you get there and you're in the middle of the market uh, the rabble of a marketplace and they could hardly even worship God because of all the buying and selling and trading and bartering happening all around them And Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he is teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Right? You get this? God's vision for the temple... It was much bigger than just the nation of Israel. It, it was to be a house of prayer for all nations. But the only spot that had been set aside for people of other races, it had become a place of commercial greed and profit. They couldn't even pray there without being disturbed. Now, this is all pretty significant. But Jesus' words cut a lot deeper than this and unfortunately we'll miss it and we often do miss it because we don't know our Old Testaments well enough. When Jesus said these, talked about it being a den of robbers, he was referring them to Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, which... This was approximately 600 BC, this was written, right? So about 600 years before Jesus was born. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, Yahweh, the Lord our God, is chastising Israel for having a false sense of security that their religious observances was going to make up for all of their misdeeds. All right? So, so what, what was happening is that they would come to the temple... Not, not at all being repentant for anything that they've done and holding every intention of continuing on in their wrongdoing as soon as they got home again, they'd come to the temple, they'd do their sacrifices and they believed that this was going to make everything okay for them and then they'd go home. And this is the passage that Jesus points us to when he says that they've made God's house a den of robbers. Let me read it, Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 1 to 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of Yahweh's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah, all who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and, and then come here and stand before me in this house 
which is called by my name, and say, well, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these same abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. Go now to my place in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of all of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. You know, Jerusalem's a religious capital of... Israel, hey. Did you know that there used to be an, another place that was the capital of Israel? That's what Shiloh was. Shiloh was the first place that God chose. But when the people turned to idolatry, that's where they were defeated by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. And Psalm 78 tells us about Shiloh's destruction. So that happened first. And so Jerusalem then became the religious capital. And eventually the, the Temple of Solomon was built in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God is warning them again, hey, remember what I did at Shiloh and why I did it? Don't go thinking that, that because this is the temple of Yahweh, that you can come here with your wicked heart and that I'm going to delight in all your offerings and I'm going to save you. You've, he's saying to them, you've become a den of robbers in my eyes. And of course, eventually, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed too. Why? Because of exactly the same reason that, that God destroyed Shiloh. Because the people wouldn't repent. And now Jesus is talking to these people at the Temple of Solomon. And he's calling then them a den of robbers. What's he doing? He's pointing them to the destruction of the temple that had happened earlier. He's saying to them, don't you think that God won't do this again? This is you. You see, the den of robbers, it isn't so much about dishonest trade in the temple. And I know that's what I've heard year after year when I've heard this passage preached on. I've been told, oh, that the den of robbers analogy is because of the dishonest trade. Well, I think that's more of a symptom of what the real thing is about. This is Jesus pointing us to Jeremiah chapter 7, which is revealing to us that this is all about having a false sense of security that, that religious ceremonies are going to make us all okay. Right? The, the, the temple was like that fig tree. It was all very flash. There was plenty going on. All of the religious sacrifices and everything was happening, but their hearts were evil. And it's like that fig tree. It, was, it all looked beautiful and lush. It looked fantastic, but there was no fruit. Because they'd come to the temple 
and do all of the religious stuff, but their hearts were far from God, that there was no fruit of righteousness. As one commentator puts it, Jesus indirectly attacks them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place where people think that they find forgiveness and fellowship with God, no matter how they act on the outside. Jesus' prophetic action and words attack a false trust in the efficacy of the temple sacrificial system. Right? They trusted that it was going to be very efficient, the temple sacrificial system is very efficient, it's going to take away all of my sins and I'm going to be okay with God. But they weren't, they weren't changed. And so this passage is all about how God is going to wipe the slate clean and start all over again. And of course, by the time we get to chapter 13, Jesus is openly telling his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that is what happened. In the year 70 AD, Antiochus Epiphanes came in to put down a Jewish rebellion and totally crushed the whole place, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. And we're going to hear more about that when Jesus foretells this happening um, in a few weeks' time. Now, of course, the religious leaders were none too happy with Jesus for telling them all this. You know, we, we sometimes wonder... Why would anybody ever crucify someone as nice as Jesus? You know why? Because Jesus wasn't a nice guy. Jesus was offensive. He truly, truly offended them. Now seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So we then exit the scene at the temple. Next morning they see the fig trees withered away to its roots and that's the living, breathing and now dead metaphor for the temple and the Jewish religious system that we've already talked about. Now that's all very nice and interesting history. What's this mean for us today? Well, I believe, I believe there's two very important lessons for us in that reading today. Uh, the first lesson uh, we're going to talk about today and the second lesson we're going to leave it for next week. The first lesson is a warning. It's a warning against having a false sense of having a secure salvation that comes from fruitless religion. And the second lesson that we're going to have next week is going to be about prayer. We're going to see what Jesus teaches us towards the end of that passage on prayer. So let's begin with a warning. Many people who claim to be Christians today are just like that fig tree. We're all show and no fruit. And of course, when we're talking about fruit, we're talking about the fruit of righteousness. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about the fruit of a changed, redeemed life. You know, when Je we believe Jesus came to save us from our sins, right? That doesn't mean that he just crosses them off. He, he actually wants to save us from them. He wants to change us. 
That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit, so we've actually got a bit of hope in being changed. Because if he doesn't change anything about us, then how are we going to become a changed people? Well, he does. He changes a lot about us. And yet many people who claim to be Christians are no different to anybody else in the world. The only difference about them is their fruitless religious observances. And I'm not going to limit this to any one tradition. This happens across all the traditions. There are those who are wicked and immoral. And to an extent, that's us. We lie, we cheat, we steal for six and a half days a week. Then you come to church for half a day a week or maybe an hour or whatever and have a bit of religious observance and think, hey, that's made everything okay again. In some traditions, they might go to confession once a week and go, right, well, that's made me good. Or go to mass once a week and might go on a Saturday night and oh, I've done my religious duty. Then they leave church to go to the pub, get drunk and take someone home to put to bed with them. And they do this exactly the same thing over and over again. But let's look a bit closer to home. There are more and more and more Protestant evangelical churches who are preaching what is essentially some form of easy believism. Basically, the message is, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. You don't have to change anything about your life. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be forgiven. And you don't have to try and change anything. If God wants to change anything in you, he'll do that for you. You don't have to strive to be obedient to God. And not only do they tell you you don't have to do it, sometimes they'll actively actively discourage that. They'll say, oh, if you're trying to be a better person, well, that's... That's trying to be saved by works, and that's not of God. You just have to believe. Now, this, this is just an empty, empty religious belief. It's an empty religion that God hates. When I first read Jeremiah chapter 7, I was reminded of something else that comes in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul gives the image of Israel as an olive tree. And because much of Israel, God's chosen people, rejected Jesus, it's like some branches were broken off of that olive tree, right? They, They rejected Jesus, so the branches are broken off. And us Gentiles... Some of you might have Jewish blood in you, I don't know. Um, But most of us here are Gentiles, we're non-Jews. Now we have to accept the fact that we, we weren't God's original chosen people. And Paul is saying that the Gentiles, through Christ, through the grace and the mercy of God, we who were not God's original chosen people have now been grafted into this olive tree. We've been brought in through the blood of Christ, we've been brought in to become part of God's chosen plan of wonderful plan of salvation. We've been grafted in. But then Paul gives a warning. He says, if God did not spare the natural branches, 
neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. This is something that God has done over and over and over again. Unrepentant hearts, empty religion, fruitless religion. God hates it. At Shiloh, they were confident that their religious acts and the fact that they were there at God's chosen holy place they were confident that all of this was going to save them, even though their hearts were evil. It didn't work out so well for them. At the Temple of Solomon, they were confident that their religious acts would save them, even though their hearts were filled with injustice and evil. That didn't work out so well for them either. In today's reading, we come to the Temple of Herod. And they were confident that their religious acts would save them, even though their hearts were filled with injustice and evil. But of course, in 70 AD, the temple and Jerusalem and a large part of the population were destroyed. Will we ever learn? Will we ever learn that being a disciple of Jesus is a matter of having a transformed heart. It's not a matter of just having empty, fruitless religion. It's not a matter of coming here on a Sunday and singing a few nice songs and praying a few prayers and going away feeling, well, that was all very nice. I'm close to God now and then going back out to be the same old nasty bit of gear. Not saying you're old nasty bits of gear. This is something we just need to search ourselves. It's like James says, faith without works is dead. The life of discipleship is to follow Jesus. That's what being a disciple is all about, following Jesus. That means we follow him not just in what we believe, but in how we practice what we believe. It means that we amend our ways and our deeds. It may, means that we begin to act with justice and mercy. It means that we don't oppress those who are weak, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the innocent. As Jeremiah said, look, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. That means, hey, we're okay. We're God's chosen people. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, worship other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, oh, we're delivered? Only to keep on doing all those same old things? When will we learn? Let's not be those sorts of people who, who come here, worship God and then stay the same old sinful people we've always been. 
If we're disciples of Jesus, let's follow the way of Jesus. And uh, next week we're going to have a lesson on prayer. And I think prayer is going to be a good start to that. But for this week, being a, a disciple of Jesus is a life of fruitful faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes your words are so confronting. I know when I read your word, and even when I preach, um, your words cut me deep and they reveal big holes in my life. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we've been like that fruitless tree. On the outside, we can seem all very religious. Um, we can say all the right things. We can do all the right things. Sometimes we come to church and we have our time of prayer and singing and praise and and we leave to go back to do the same old things. We leave to go home to, in the next week, cheat on our tax. We fight with our wives and our husband or our husband. We disobey our parents. We tell lies. We do all sorts of things. Lord, your word cuts deep. And Lord, we don't we don't want to be that sort of person. We don't want to be the sort of people who are like a fruitless tree. Lord, help us to bear good fruit for you. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times when we actually haven't repented because we've just held on to the same old, same old. And Lord, we want to repent of that now. And Lord, we ask that you'd do your mighty transformational work in us, that you would transform us to be the people who you want us to be. That we can follow you as fruitful disciples, as your obedient children, loving Jesus and loving others. In Jesus' name. Amen.